presented by Stamper Oil, drilling the South China Sea since 1987, saving the world from total Armageddon since 1998. Stamper Oil. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjax and now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice in the dark, the man on the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, screenwriter, filmmaker, comic book writer, and if you listen closely, bird enthusiast. Wow. wow. A lot of birds on the back porch right now making a lot of noise. Yeah, and there's some enthusiasm there, certainly. Um, if you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, David Pepos, David Pepos, and David Pepos, uh, our entire also, catalog. Also David Pepos. I think you oh, forgot. Yeah. <laughs> We've had him on once, at least. Series regular. Um, yes. He's like our Mike Lupica. Um, at this it. point, uh, I think his agent would have to call this recurring. Yeah, if you, uh, yeah, if you're old enough to understand that Lupica reference, uh, hats off. Um, uh, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it out. Um, uh, great show today uh, with a mystery guest. Um, but uh, we have uh, a couple of plugs to do. So, Avalon, why don't you uh, tee yours up first? Uh, today, the day this premieres, you should run to your local comic shop and get issue the second of Elvira meets Vincent Price. She's just going to go right on meeting him for at least five issues. Oh, wow. uh, and uh, this issue, issue, I believe, is titled Anks for the Mammaries, but because it involves ancient Egypt... And Elvira, yeah, and, and breasts, uh, yeah, um, yeah. Wacky, wackiness and wackiness ensues. And uh, Ryland, what do you got out there in the world? Um, well, if you run down to your local comic shop right now, run, don't walk, as Avaloni said. Uh, you can pick up uh, issue one of Suicide Jockeys, uh, my latest and greatest. It is a Tokusatsu joint. Tokusatsu for the uninitiated is the uh, Japanese sci-fi action genre that includes things like uh, Power Rangers and Super Sentai, and also includes kaiju fare like Godzilla. Um, in a nutshell, Suicide Jockeys is Fast and the Furious meets Voltron with an extra dollop of heart and soul and love and coolness. Um, and it's it excellent up. and very entertaining. I read it a couple of days ago. I finally had a chance to sit down and give it a read. Well, thanks. Thanks for the, that. That is high praise. And um, yeah, people seem to be taking it um, uh, as it was intended and enjoying it exactly how I wanted to enjoy them. It is Hollow at the Moon, good fun. Um, uh, it is a love letter to the action movies that I grew up uh, uh, loving, and I'm sure uh, uh, most of you. Um, the, the reviews have been great. I, I, one, I have not read a single negative review. Um, most of them are uh, are effusive, and you know the things like I can hear the ACDC soundtrack playing <laughs> while I'm reading it, <laughs> which is which makes me tingle inside. Um, but anyway, uh, run down, grab Suicide Jockeys. Uh, issue two will be out uh, very soon, also. So uh, get on board. Anyway, um, let's uh, let's get to it. Let's bring on our our guest. Today's mystery guest, uh, newcomer to the show, David Pepos. Hi. David Pepos. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, 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 love the introduction, uh, especially the Armageddon reference. I, I caught that, Rylan, so good for you. Um, yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to chat uh, about all sorts of things, uh, including uh, my Kickstarter uh, for the, my book, The OZ, uh, which is now in its back half of its uh, campaign. And uh, yeah, it's fully funded, so you will definitely get some books out of this. And uh, now we're gunning for... Um, uh, a brand new stretch goal, uh, our Cowardly Lion 
Courage badge enamel pins uh, when we hit $35,000. Those enamel pins look awesome, by the way. I really like them. I really like the design of them. Artist Rio Burton, uh, who did a, a variant cover for us in our last campaign, uh, when I found out that she did enamel pins, uh, I immediately reached out, and she just did a, a tremendous job on this. So yeah. Very right. excited to uh, unlock this uh, because, yeah, uh, it's a keepsake that uh, all Wizard of Oz fans are definitely going to want to love. Yes. <laughs> And, the it's, uh, and, the, and the book itself is Mad Max Fury Road, but with Judy Garland as Furiosa. So it's <laughs> yeah. It, stuff. Uh, for for those who who didn't catch up on uh, the OZ's previous campaign, uh, yeah, um, it's 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 really it's what if the Hurt Locker took place in the Wizard of Oz? It's the story of Dorothy Gale's granddaughter, who's a disillusioned Iraq War veteran who finds herself stranded in the war torn land of Oz. And she discovers that her grandmother killing two wicked witches and convincing the Wizard of Oz to leave and then clicking her heels together and splitting did not cause a happy ending, but instead a power vacuum, not unlike Baghdad. And sure. so now she's going to have to reunite her grandmother's former friends, uh, the Tin Soldier, the Scarecrow, and the Prince of Lions, if she hopes to bring peace to the occupied zone, or as the locals call it, the OZ. Nice. So, uh, yeah. If you like Mad Max, if you like the old guard, if you like... Uh, uh, games like Fallout or Final Fantasy VII or Chrono Trigger, um, or just are a fan of uh, the Judy Garland film, you will love the OZ. And uh, we're very excited to have our second double-sized issue on Kickstarter. If you missed the first campaign, we've also got print and digital catch-up tiers uh, to get you up to speed. And if you're a collector, you can get all four covers for issue two or all nine covers that we've released for the whole series uh, for some really cool discount prices. The amazing thing is it's less upsetting and violent emotionally than Return to Oz. Yes. <laughs> that's, the, that's the, it's more appropriate for children than Return to Oz, strangely yes. enough. We, we, we uh, uh, less blood, uh, less, uh, less <laughs> language. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it's a, it's a good old, it, it's, it's a good, it's a good time, uh, but one that also does explore uh, uh, PTSD and, and uh, uh, soldiers reacclimating uh, uh, after uh, being in the theater of war. And what's it like to, can you wage a just war? Um, and what's the difference between being a soldier on the ground and being sort of a, a political revolutionary? And what are the skill set overlaps? And how are they two very different jobs? Right. Um, so, there's, yeah. a, there, there's a long-term theory of art I stumbled across years and years ago that one of these days I will write a very boring essay about. But I noticed once that virtually all genre fiction is about veterans with PTSD that basically what I grew up with was seeing uh, Vietnam veterans lose it on hour long cop shows in the seventies mm -hmm. and film noir is Korean and world war two veterans working out their issues. Yeah. Gangster movies from the twenties, the roaring twenties, the first scene in it is in a trench in world war one in case you're, in case you're wondering how we ended up with gangsters in American cities and people who were okay with firing machine guns at other people and all that. And, yeah. you know, every Western you've ever seen has a guy wearing an either blue or gray cap or overcoat explaining why he's angry and broken and hurt. And take it all the way back to the Iliad. Like, literally, you know, the Odyssey yeah. is about a guy suffering from PTSD trying to get back to his wife. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's funny that you're, you're you're talking about that. I mean, I, I grew up in a, I mean, one, my dad fought in Vietnam, and until the day he died of 
cancer caused by Agent Orange that you know he uh, that he was exposed to in Vietnam dealt with serious PTSD literally until the day he died. I grew up in a housing project in Detroit and have my own <laughs> PTSD sort of things. So you look at my my sort of oeuvre, you know, uh, soldier who loses his, his entire unit to a superhuman attack, dealing with PTSD for for ten issues. Um, uh, 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 Batman like superhero who's uh, been pe beaten to a pulp his whole life wrestling with PTSD who you know realizes he's you know he's dying uh, cancer caused by his powers and 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 he can't leave the city uh, uh, you know in dire straits anymore and so he sort of goes off the reservation um, literally guy who grew up in a housing project in Detroit <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, who, who, who had this horrible thing happen to him who is wrestling with the PTSD of the situation. Um, guy who, uh, you know, guy who lost the love of his life in a uh, mission gone wrong 10 years ago wow. who is still dealing with the PTSD <laughs> surrounded by that. So it's, it's funny to say that. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah, um, it's yeah. just, and I've noticed that in the post 9-11 world, you see it like virtually everything is very nail on the head dealing with post with BTSD. And now I've been thinking about this for the last year and a half. Since 1946, there hasn't been an event where the entire planet was suffering PTSD until 2020 and 2021. Like there have been terrible events that we've all suffered from, but there are definitely people in this world who didn't give a shit about 9-11 and there are definitely people in this world who didn't give a shit about you know la earthquakes or the riots or all the various apocalypses i've lived through in southern california in the last 34 years but this one you couldn't really escape it in any corner of the earth you, you know some countries get better better than others etc but at some point it impacted your life in a negative way and it's interesting to me to think about what's gonna come of this, you know, 9-11, we had, we had a wave of, I think a very regrettable wave. There was one summer where I think I wrote a tweet about it, which was like, when I was a kid, Captain Kirk, James Bond and Superman would actually prevent the supervillain from destroying a major city. Instead of the major city gets destroyed and oh, but we got the supervillain. It's like, yeah, no, that's not actually that heroic, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not, you know, it's like, I'm okay in, you know, it's fine that Delta Force commandos kill Osama bin Laden 11 years after he, you know, knocked down the World Trade Centers. That's the real world. But the real world doesn't have Captain Kirk, James Bond, and Superman. And I don't go to the movies to see them fail utterly. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. not a when Khan crashes a spaceship into San Francisco, killing half a million people. I'm like, I think Captain Kirk kind of fucked up this one. And there's no like, I don't care if he beats him. I don't let's not really, you know, yeah. James Bond's yeah. mission in Skyfall is keep M alive. Oh, oh, well, oh, well, yeah. it's like it, it's like if Goldfinger had blown up Fort Knox. It's like, yeah, but we got him. It's like, yeah, that's not really. The point. I wasn't, yeah, that wasn't really the main directive here. Yeah, there is there is this other thing that happens in real life that doesn't happen in movies, and it's it's the fallout of everything, right? Um, you know, uh, we talked about Armageddon uh, before, right? Bruce Willis stops an asteroid from hitting the Earth and destroying us. the The truth is, uh, and I've, I'm I'm an enthusiast about this. I think I have about 
I think I have about 60 books about uh, uh, about asteroids and or comets uh, uh, conceivably hitting the Earth or hitting Jupiter or anything that's happened. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, if an asteroid the size of Texas hit us, then we would probably all be vaporized pretty much instantaneously. But what is more likely to happen is that something smaller hits us. Um, and, uh, and the immediate... Uh, you know, like if it hits New York City, New York City will be vaporized, maybe Connecticut and, and some other things also. But what is actually going to happen, the true catastrophe is, is going to be that this asteroid will kick up so much dust and sort of, you know, the equivalent of nuclear fallout into our atmosphere that over the course of the, the next couple of decades, um, the rest of the world will be slowly choked out <laughs> and die of starvation well, and all of these things. And so, and so that becomes the thing is like, well, we've had the equivalent of like our asteroid hit over the last 18 months or whatever. And so, so now I fear, okay, well, what is, you know, what is the dust in the air now? What is the fallout of all of that? Like how, how do some of us now get choked out <laughs> or well, don't we, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the other thing well, we have a uh, flooding and fires to look forward to. Yeah. The other thing, though, that I would say, what 9-11 proved more than anything is how little it takes. Basically, terrorists knocked over two very large office buildings, put a hole in a government building in Washington, D.C., and, and no one flew in an airplane for a week. The stock market, the world economy crashed and didn't recover for a decade really like it crashed and then it super crashed seven years later again it's like when i see the end of uh what's his fuck's watchman movie and doc manhattan you know the fake doc manhattan vibe wipes out 10 major cities i'm like that's the end of the world i mean if considering that you know two office buildings getting knocked over caused two wars that lasted 20 years and destroyed yeah. the economy two times over three times over it's like Knock out those whole ten whole cities. That's it for civilization. It doesn't actually. There's no building back from that. You know, you destroy New York alone. I would. I would say that's it for human civilization. And that's the. That's what, and it's this been the same thing with COVID. The stress test. How little it takes to destroy everything. You know, and we've talked about that even in our own industry, companies that only had a two week float that were, you know, a company with a monopoly over the comic book industry that could only keep its door open for two weeks when shops were closed. That was always bad. That was always flawed and broken. You just had you it, it took until the guy pushed the, the domino over and you went, oh, yeah, yeah, that failed immediately. <laughs> you know, like the number of safeguards that like. Oh yeah, look at that. That also failed immediately. How about that? I think that? we talked about this the last time I was here. Yeah. I, I feel like you said these exact words the last time. It's very possible. Yeah. It's yeah. very possible. I've been kind of obsessed with how you know how the reveal of how broken everything is has been kind of wild. You know. This is a this is a wonderfully enthusiastic and yeah. bright-eyed yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, opening to the show. Hello! <laughs> Armageddon brought to you by Good Vibes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let us let us change course. Ryland, <laughs> give us the food for thought for the day. 
Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, before we get into the deep food for thought, Pepos, I just wanted to check in with you on, I think this is a good topic. I mean, we have been huge uh, Kickstarter cheerleaders, proponents. Um, uh, it's almost a cliche now that every guest that comes on uh, uh, that hasn't done a Kickstarter, I spend a good portion of the uh, of the show actually trying to convince them to do a Kickstarter. Um, this works sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, I spent, you know, a good 20 minutes telling Rodney Barnes why he should kickstart Blackula, and then I think about 15 minutes after uh, after Avalone uh, stopped the recording, he uh, he hit me up the email and he's like, kickstart. It was subject Kickstarter, uh, the mm -hmm. body. What what now? Question mark. And so I've been <laughs> I've been coaching Rodney through uh, through Kickstarter, assuming MGM will let him uh, uh, do a Kickstarter for Blackula. But anyway, um, uh, the OZ launches, you know, uh, huge success the first time around. Um, which, which I, I always think is so funny because we talk about this and like, because um, I, I was talking with another, I was talking with David Barron, um, uh, you know, Hall of Fame colorist who is also a, a great creator in his own right, um, and 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 partially thanks to me, he is now uh, on course to launch his first Kickstarter, and he and I were having a conversation uh, this uh, uh, on the phone this last week, and and it was about you and I had the same exact conversation. What should I set my goal as? Um, and, and it went the exact same way because I'm like, well, I don't know, set it at about 7,000, you know, you had the same exact reaction you are really, you think I can make $7,000. I remember talking with you, like, and you, th you think I was insane that you could make $7,000 on Kickstarter. You were so terrified and, 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 and believe me, I, I, I had the same conversation with Charlie when I did this. Um, but cut to at the end of the first day, you had about sixteen thousand dollars, <laughs> yeah. and then and then you went on to what did you do the first go round? Sixty or or uh, we made we made a uh, forty six forty six forty six thousand okay. dollars, and then we actually yeah. with backer kit we actually did cross the fifty thousand dollar mark. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you know it's it's funny. You were the one, you know. I I I, I was lucky enough to have kind of a brain trust to to reach out to. When I decided to 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 take the plunge into Kickstarter, you know, I, I talked with you with you guys. I talked with um, uh, Charlie Stickney. Uh, I talked yeah. with Russell Nahelty, Pat Shand, uh, Clay Adams, and so it was good to get all these different kinds of perspectives. And um, yeah, you know, I, I Clay actually was the one that kind of convinced me because you were really you were the biggest cheerleader, saying, "Oh, you will definitely smash through your goal." And I was like, "Oh, I don't know, man." Like. Um, I, I love Russell. Russell was like, be very conservative. Like this is your first Kickstarter. We have no idea how it's going to go. Uh, yeah. you know, I would expect too much out of it. And I, uh, Ru Russell's always very uh, self-deprecating about it now, or he's like, shows what I have. Um, but, uh, Clay was like, you know, here's the thing. People love to see a Kickstarter win. Yeah. And so if you get funded, if you go as low as you feel comfortable going, if you break through that, then it just snowballs. Everybody's really excited and they want to back a winner. So for me, um, my thinking was not so much, how can I get in the black? What's the lowest amount that I could get in the black? Cause that's not really, you know, there's art and production, but then there's also printing, there's shipping. So for me, what I always say is what's the lowest I can go that I'm comfortably in the red. You know, yeah. that I'm not just like really panicking because ultimately, you know, uh, you have your Kickstarters, but you will eventually be able to sell them. You know, when conventions come back, you can sell right. them and, yeah. and 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 you'll you'll be able to print more copies than just the Kickstarter. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's you you can make that money back. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, you know, uh, nobody was more surprised than me that, um, you know, on, on the, the both Kickstarters that we funded uh, almost instantly. Um, yeah. In two hours in the first Kickstarter, we funded in uh, less than 45 minutes in the second. And um, yeah, you know, it's, um, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm very fortunate that, you know, it's like I had a, a, a small, but I think very vocal and passionate following um, for my direct market material. And, um, and like we were talking about uh, before the podcast started, um, you know, friends and family were, you know, uh, really enthusiastic to, to help out. Kickstarter is a lot easier to navigate than, uh, than the direct market pre-order system. So I think it was a relief for them to just say, okay, give me the link and I'll, I'll buy it with my card. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been wild, um, you know, especially with this uh, second Kickstarter, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a different playing field, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's been a year. We're still in a pandemic, you know, um, and now we've got flooding and, and fires and, and, and the like going on. And so, um, yeah, you know, that I think is um, it's I think we've still done really well with all that. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of creators are sort of taking a beat and figuring out, like, well, what do I want to do? I think the, the, the recent Substack announcements has also been a little mm -hmm. bit of a disruptor in the whole market. Um, but I still think that Kickstarter is a really vibrant and um, and uh, and and just a, a financially feasible platform for a lot mm -hmm. of, of people who either you know they don't have the funding to put the books together or they don't have a, a voice that will fit in sort of the more narrow mindset of the direct market, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, let alone the book publishing market. So um, I wholeheartedly recommend people do Kickstarters. Um, I think more creators uh, on the individual, uh, you know, on that platform, only the, the rising tide floats all boats, you know? Um, and I think, you know, while there's a certain, while I, I, I do think, of course, more people being on it will certainly push out certain campaigns, especially sort of, not to sound dismissive, but ones that are more on the amateur level, but I, if you can produce something that is of at least, you know, is of professional quality, yeah. people love that. And and the Kickstarter community, I think, is really um, a really positive place uh, supporting independent creators. They see mm -hmm. this as these are artisanal comics that are being delivered directly from the creator. And they feel that sense of uh, ownership and investment, knowing that these books wouldn't exist without the support of our backers. So uh, and uh, whenever I back something, yeah. even if it's not by you two guys, yeah. the email thanking me for backing comic book campaign X yeah. inevitably has a link to one of your campaigns. <laughs> like inevitably it's like, here's some other stuff you will like. I'm like, yeah, I backed that about, oh, and there's Pepos. You know, yeah. it's the, it, you know, it's I love the system. Yeah, know? I love um, having my, it's like, you know, it's like when Amazon sends me, here's some comics on Amazon you might like. David Avalonis, yes, I, I do like that. That is very good. I enjoy, <laughs> well, I enjoy the, the work. I, I, you, you've seen that I've enjoyed the work of David Avaloni. That's an excellent uh, thank you. But it's well, good to know that the, for want of a better word, like this, the bots are working for you. Yeah. I just, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just love that there's this, you know, there is like a different, there's a different outlet for us now, for creators now. Um, we don't need to go right now into too much what's happening with a certain publisher and all that noise um, uh, for, for any number of reasons. That's a different show at a different time and all of these things. 
Um, but I mean, you and I, you know, in the beginning, and 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 this will segue nicely into our our, our sort of topic for the day, career yeah. development. But like, we put out books with small publishers that you know, for you know, by by any stretch of of these small publisher imagination, were very successful yeah. in terms of sales for that publisher, in terms of uh, profile for that publisher, in terms of critical success, in terms of award nominations, and all of these things. We did it. As, as as well as we could, right? Yeah. And we didn't make any money, and <laughs> and, and, and it's not it's not to say zero or, or or whatever, but 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 it is very hard to make any money, you know, uh, uh, doing you know creator owned uh, indie comics, right? And that whole uh, you know that whole like algorithm changes dramatically when you bring Kickstarter into the mix, right? Where it's like one hundred percent, you know. I, I, you know. The, the thing that I think the, the, the big hurdle that I had and um, Charlie Stickney was the one that really kind of uh, convinced me of this was he said, you know, they're the Wednesday warriors, the ones that go into the comic shop every week and they're the backbone of the industry. We love them. But there are some people that, you know, gun to their head. They're not going to go to a comic shop. You know, it's just not mm -hmm. it's not going to fit in their life. You know, there, there's either not a comic shop near them or the comic shop is kind of intimidating to them or not welcoming or just, you know, they don't have time, you know, and. and um, there, that's why there are people who buy their books primarily on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, or Comixology if they're digital readers. There's the people who uh, would buy their books primarily at cons. There's the Webtoons uh, readership. And there are the people who primarily buy their books through crowdfunding. And it's not to say there isn't some degree of overlap, but it's pretty minimal. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know uh, if, if I sell uh, you know, 900 books through the OZ's Kickstarter, um, that's, a, that's a win. Uh, but, you know, if I had, had only 900 copies in the direct market, you know, Diamond might yank the book. Mm -hmm. So Charlie had said, you know, there's a whole demographic of readership that you've done no outreach to because you've only done direct market. Yeah. And um, it, it really crystallized for me. There's a, I think people who say that the, the comics readership is dwindling, I think there's a degree of overstatement to that. I think there's just, mm -hmm. it's fragmented. It's just like yeah. any other media uh, platform. There's yeah. a readership diaspora, and I think That's it's, it. common. it's what, what's happened in TV, right? I mean, it's yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> there used to be shows that got you know 50 million viewers. <laughs> That's yeah, not the case anymore. Thing, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and and now you've got you know all the streaming platforms, um, and and now sort of the networks are are fighting back with their sort of a la carte streaming channels, essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like you know, I think it's incumbent upon us as creators to try to bridge those gaps as best we can and invite them to the same table. Yeah. And uh, I think Kickstarter is a really effective way of doing that. And I think like you were saying, Rylan, it's also a, a way to make making comics uh, financially viable. Um, you know, I, I, you know, we, we all live in Los Angeles and, and I can't tell you how many Hollywood people have asked me, Oh, well, you know, I've got an idea that I think would be a great comic. And I usually say, well, do you have 10 months and $15,000? Mm -hmm. um, because that's what it's going to take. And usually they go pale and they say, well, I thought the publisher would handle that. And I was like, well, then the publisher will take your media rights. Yeah, and uh, they'd be like, what? And I'm like, yeah, that's 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 the thing. Um, Kickstarter, I think you're able to kind of bridge that gap. And it's in part because unlike in a comic shop where really your choices are singles or trade, you know, um, uh, for Kickstarter, you can modulate the rewards. Um, you know, you can say, oh, if somebody just wants sort of the, the very basic digital tier, then that's great. But you can still add on more things as stretch goals so people feel like they're getting more bang for their buck. 
all the way to, you know, oh, you want to get a complete set of covers? Okay, that's great. You can get that for a discount price. Or for the the, the real high rollers, if they want, say, uh, a handmade Spencer and, look, and Lock and plushie. You know, we had a couple of those made for the creative team. We have a few left over. Great. You want to plunk down a few hundred dollars, you get this very unique keepsake from one of my books or um, a complete set of 14 Ranger Scout merit badges from uh, my series at Aftershock, Scout's Honor, you know, where only seven of those badges have been released in the wild yet. So this is where you get all of them straight from my personal collection or getting drawn into the book or getting a commission from my artist. Um, yeah. That's, an that's a, a, a sort of uh, versatility that you can't match anywhere else. Um, and I do think in that way, Kickstarter is kind of the best of both worlds. You know, it's, um, it's easy to access like a sub stack, but if you want that physical artifact, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just like the, you know, going in the direct market. So it really is, it's a win-win all around. And I think also, you know, it's a good learning experience for any creator. You know, I think oftentimes in the indie scene, you know, um, writers are usually the ones expected to bankroll the project. And so they're used to writing and, and funding and maybe doing a little bit of editorial work. Um, maybe doing a little bit of publicity if they really know what they're doing, but you know, most published, most most indie creators don't know what it's like to to do production work, to reach out to a printer, to do your own essentially your own fulfillment and distribution. Yeah. But once you learn how to do that, it becomes so liberating for you. Oh yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to wait for permission anymore. Yeah. Um, if you have a story that you feel really passionate about, you put your team together and you Kickstarter it. Yeah, and it's. And now, uh, as we're seeing with the deals with Scott Snyder and uh, the Substack crew, um, it, you know, I think uh, it used to be, even just a few years ago, there was a stigma about Kickstarter. Not just, mm -hmm. oh, if you self-publish, it's not considered real or uh, you know, of professional quality. But a lot of publishers would say, oh, well, the, the, market, the, the audience has been cannibalized. You've already tapped that audience. And I think now it's becoming normalized that, no, there's a huge audience out there who, you know, for whatever reasons are not buying their books on Kickstarter. They're just going to their local comic shop. And um, and so I think that is another way to sort of diversify revenue streams. It's no longer an either or proposition uh, that I think we've been trained to do as comics fans all the way down to the original binary of Marvel versus DC. Um, it becomes an and. And I think um, the, the more different readerships we can kind of bridge together, the healthier and more unified our industry will be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's the thing with the first comics Kickstarter I did, you know, we, we funded successfully, but then we went to floppies and we did okay in the diamond system with floppies. Uh, yeah. But we didn't do like, did we do okay to, for the thing to keep financing itself, which would I help? No, didn't work that way. And I will say, it's like, you don't want to necessarily have sympathy for the devil, but there's something to be said for producing your own comic book and doing the printing and doing the shipping that gives you a little bit of like, oh, shit, how do these companies make a dime? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. even with like, it's like, I don't want to excuse anyone for giving me a shitty page rate, but sometimes I look at you know, what, you know, the average indie comic seems to sell about 3,000 copies. And I'm like, how does that, that's, mm, I don't know how you're making much off that. Cause that's a, the margins are thin. Yeah. Um, God forbid you took out an ad, yeah, you know, God just, forbid you paid any money for an ad for those comics. Holy shit. You're not seeing that money back. You it's, know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a tight market. Um, and that's why I think, you know, 
I think the way that we're going to start seeing it is it's going to be, you know, of course, Kickstarter is the lion's share of the finances. And then if it gets, if a book gets a second life in the direct market, that's the cherry on top. You know, it sort right. of it opens up the book to a wider audience and maybe you get some extra income on yeah. top. But yeah, Kickstarter is, I can tell you the OZ just with one double-sized issue. So we'll say, we'll say two issues for the sake of, of comparison uh, has made me more money than uh, than the entirety of Spencer and Locke has over several years, um, and they did it in a month. Yeah. Um, you know, and and uh, and you know, as you can see, the book is just building on itself, um, and and uh, I think that's a, you know it's a win win, and I think creators it empowers them. Um, I think they they realize it's not to say that working with a publisher can't be a good thing. I, I love working with direct market publishers. I'm working with some now, but um, you know, that's why I say it's not an either or proposition. No. And it, you know, and, and it shows that, you know, if a, if a publisher doesn't necessarily have the trust or vision in your story, which that's been the story of my career, um, you can prove that you have an audience and, uh, right. and, and not go into the hole financially to do so. Well, so it, it's what I like is that it is, I mean, for smart publishers, Kickstarter has become a farm system, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, I mean, Scout, I feel like has had this, Scout Comics has had this like steady upward trajectory because they're making a lot of like smart forward thinking decisions. They're seeing the playing field like a lot of people aren't. And one of the really smart things they've done is they were among the first to be like, oh, wow. So like if people over here really love the book, you know, like on Kickstarter, People in comic shops are probably really going to love it, also. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and 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 like that—that's not that big a leap. I don't know why. I mean, there there was so much. Um, it, it was so hard for comic companies to get there, um, and it takes a sort of thinking outside the box company to come in oh. and do that. Now, I think it, it it is it is sort of slowly but surely, or maybe it's quickly now becoming the standard, right? Um, where this is a farm system, where it's like, and and it, I mean any of this stuff is about mitigating risk, right? Yeah. Um, you never know, you never know if what you're gonna put out uh, uh, is, is going to hit with people, right? Um, and so uh, for some companies that means really paring down your slate, right? Um, uh, we're gonna be so careful about it and we're gonna say no to good projects because uh, they don't, they, you know, they don't, they don't check 10 boxes, right? Um, there are other companies, again, we're not going to talk about those companies that, um, okay, we're going to put out, you know, we're going to put out 10 times as many books as we should. We're going to throw everything against the wall and anything that doesn't stick, we're going to cancel and screw the creator over. And then we're going to ride these five or six ponies that's, that stuck to the wall. Right. Um, and, and either of those approaches is terrible. And so, again, a company like Scout can step in and be like, okay, well, um, well, you know, we can see, like, you know, here is a test case. We've proven this in this in this arena that yeah. this is going to be a successful book, that they've had five Kickstarters that have been successful, that they've built an audience over every uh, 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 campaign, that, that, that people who read the book are enthusiastic about it and are telling a friend, um, all of those things. And it's like, okay, well, this model that works, let's just put this over here. <laughs> And, and we're going to shine it up and we're going to add our own pieces to it and stuff yeah. like that. But like, that's, uh, yeah. I think the adding the, the own pieces is, is something else that I think a lot of people overlook because um, that's something that I've thought about with my Kickstarters going in is, um, you know, look, Kickstarter is my number one priority for, for, mm -hmm. for uh, you know, any project I'm going to start on Kickstarter, you know, 
uh, it was the Kickstarter community that believed in the OZ. I mean, we talked with a number of publishers who we could not get them to give us the contract. You know, they said they were interested and then another fire would break out. They'd have to go put that out and we'd be back where we started. And so I always say, you know, like I'm, that's my top priority. We're going to get the books out through Kickstarter first and foremost. But I always think, I'm always thinking, you know, okay, what, what's the room for flexibility in terms of if we ever got a second life in the direct market, what could we offer that's a little different, you know? And so that's why we've been doing double-sized issues uh, on Kickstarters in part because I want people to make sure they're feeling like they're getting plenty of bang for their buck, yeah. you know, that if they're throwing down uh, $20 for a single, you know, it's a single that's got spot UV, it's got heavier paper stock, and it's 44 pages of story, right. uh, you know, compared to the usual 20 that people are, are, are paying for right now, 20 or 22. But then if it ever went to the direct market, that means they're able, you can break them in half. Um, yeah. And so you can do those standard size chapters and you can do new covers um, and, and, and in a way that, oh, you know, for the collectors, they feel like they're getting something different for people who missed out on the Kickstarter the first time they feel like they're getting something different while you don't have to materially change the actual material. Uh, and so that's something that I always kind of take into, into consideration when I'm doing a Kickstarter is I want to make sure it's special for the Kickstarter people, but that we have some room for flexibility if we ever took this out for a second life in the direct market later on. Well, yeah, I always, and then the, uh, I always uh, promise that the, that the Kickstarter version, that version will never be available commercially. Yes. Like we'll exactly. never just change the UPC code on it and yeah. sell it. At the very, very least, and again, knowing the the fan base that I'm dealing with, new cover on yeah. everything. Yeah. My favorite yeah. lazy thing we did is the Ragdolls cover on the Kickstarter was a night shot with the moon in the sky, and mm -hmm. we changed it to a sun and made it day. Like the colorist was able <laughs> yeah. to get the alternate cover out of it. Love it's it. still an yeah. alternate cover, though. It's still different. So yeah, we we uh, we did that for our very first issue of Spencer and Locke. We did a, a New York Comic Con cover and then we recolored it for the direct market yeah um, and and so but it's like the last two i've done the same thing the last two elvira kickstarters i've done they wanted 40 page specials and i was not instructed to do this but i put a very clear issue break at the bottom of page 20 on both of those you know Smart. what i mean there's a, there's a mid story high point cliffhanger on page 20 and it's a splash page size page and i'm like I know we're not doing this, but the day to. may come that you want a twenty-page, you want to squeeze two twenty-page or four twenty-page floppies out of these two forty-page specials. You now have a four-issue series. Yep, that's um, the way to do it. This that's story, whether you like it or not, you know, <laughs> and yeah. that's the uh, and again, it works fine in the forty-page version. You turn the page, and it also I have I couldn't help myself. I remember the seventies when when there was two pages of ads, it would say, end of part one, part two continues in two pages. <laughs> it was a very yeah. common thing in the seventies. I'm like, why is it part, it's in the same, why is it part two? It's just to yeah. make up for a couple of pages of ads. But it, uh, it, yeah, go ahead. It, it's funny for me how, um, I mean, there are like production and workflow concerns that dictate a lot of this stuff for me. I mean, I, I, I agree 100% that you want to make the Kickstarter experience special. You want to give uh, uh, people, you know, uh, 
as much bang for your buck as as possible. And certainly a high page count helps. Uh, it helps that I tend to, with my creator-owned comics, I write to 30 instead of yeah. write to 22. So I, I immediately, um, I, I'm immediately ahead of the game in terms of that point. Yeah. But there there are two lines of thinking here. You know, with, with the jump, the jump is something that, um, that I'm doing slowly but surely. I mean, I, I, you know, I have this, this pesky day job where I, I get paid to write film and television. So, so comics are something I have to kind of do on the side. And when I have time with the jump, I, I don't, I, I have, I have this sense of where things are going. I know the big fence posts. I don't know every step along the way yet. I'm still finding it. And so dropping one issue at a time, get, gives me the time I need to, to sort of find this thing and to keep people interested in all of that stuff. Whereas uh, with the peacekeepers, um, I already have it. It's already it's already written, you know. I already have all six issues written. Um, and if I kickstarted it, you, you can only do so many kickstarters in a year, right? You know, you 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 got at most you can do four, but that's really pushing it. Like right. like it, 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 if you are it, you know if you are pedals to the metal, three is a lot. Like I oh. I did three I did three last year. I I, I just fulfill in a year. I, I just fulfilled you know the third one, and I was so burnt out that. I needed to take a break. I couldn't do another one, but, but, yeah. but, and then I'm doing two titles. So I, I do jump, I do peacekeepers, I do jump, I do peacekeepers. And so if I kickstarted this one issue at a time, it would take me, you know, three years to get to, <laughs> to, yeah. to trade. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing this two issues at a time to move it along, to get it into hands, to get it yeah. to a, a place where I can then take it to a, uh, um, a, a, a traditional publisher and it can have that other life uh, in this other arena we're talking about. And so I think all of these, uh, you know, I think all of these things and, and, and Avalone has, has, has a different uh, uh, approach to all this. You guys kickstart a trade at a time, right? You're doing four yep. issues at a time. We do four yeah, so it's like, and that's, it's, it's tricky. It's because it's a big bite. And I, you yeah. know, would I have done it without having a partner with a billion fans? No, I would not yeah. have imagined. If you had asked me, like, do you think your comic that you wrote is going to, you know, attract $100,000 on Kickstarter, I laughed in your face. Right. But, you know, the man with a billion fans might just... Now, as we've talked, I've talked about before, we're selling a very different product than the one his fans are interested in. You know, it's... My joke is always, oh, you like the Muppet Show? Here's all that jazz. It's like, it's not exactly the same... Those are even closer, you know. It's like you like the Ninja Turtles. Here's Fellini's eight and a half. It's like mm, those aren't really the same thing. But we found a way to make it appeal to at least some of that core audience. And I think that's you know, David. One of the things that you always do, which I think is smart for the Kickstarter world, is it's always kind of a buzzy, easily grasped, high concept. Right. And I think right. that's you know, the easier it is to sell. Uh, yeah. I live and die by the log line um, uh, because yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I think you hit it right in the head is that there's so many books out there and I think people are naturally a little conservative when it comes to their entertainment. They've, and they've only gotten more so since, you know, everything's kind of franchised now. And so if you're able to at least provide some familiar touchstones, um, you know, uh, and that it helps that that's how I write my things is I, 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 I like doing mashups. And so, you know, sure. I'm like, uh, you know, if I want to do, uh, you know, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Well, it's an easy, it's an easy logline to say because that's how I built the book. Right. Um, and and uh, and same thing, you know, Mad Max meets the Wizard of Oz, or uh, you know, the the you know uh, the Hunger Games meets Mulan. 
Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it's definitely, um, uh, that's definitely served me, I think actually surprisingly better than I, than I expected. Do you know what Uh, the, the, the definition of an exploitation film, I think Roger Corman came up with it mm -hmm. is something where the title, the concept itself is Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who wrote it, directed it, or who's in it. If you say zombie cheerleaders to someone and that's a movie they want to see, then that's a movie they want to see. They don't give a shit who's in it. It's yeah. zombie cheerleaders. Bikers from hell. Fantastic. Where's the where sign me up? And I joke when I'm, you know, promoting Elvira meets Vincent Price, admittedly, like those aren't that that's those are licensed properties. I always say, I if I have to sell it to you, you're not interested. Like if you yeah. Either you're excited when I say Elvira meets Vincent Price or you're not excited. And if you're excited, all I have to do is point to the shelf. And if you're not excited, yeah. nothing I say, yeah. if you don't love those two people, nothing. No, but it's it's like, no, no, no. You, That's what Russell the Healthy always says about his, uh, his Hulu anthologies. Is, What's that? Uh, he says, yeah, they sell themselves because if you're into Cthulhu, then you will pick up a Cthulhu anthology. And if you're not into it, then you're going to, you know, I can't convince you. Well, uh, and, and, yeah, and, and, and let's be honest. Like, I, I would say, like, one of six projects on Kickstarter has Cthulhu uh, in the title. So, like, yeah. there's a, there is a, uh, you know, that that is the that is the place to take anything Cthulhu. Like, well, it's um, you know, I, I mean, R- Russell is such a savvy marketer that it's like, you, you, you know, like, you know, there are these apps. Like, if you want your Instagram post to do well, there are these apps that will, like, you know, there's an algorithm. They they put it in. Uh, you're trying to sell fucking hot dogs, right? And they will yeah. go in and they will find like the keywords that you need to put, you know, the, the tags you need to put into your post. Uh, it, you type in, I'm promoting hot dogs and they will give you the the 15 hashtags to use to get your post oh, in front of as many people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, uh, um, uh, I mean, Russell also loves this stuff, but like he's also well aware of, okay, this is, he's a savvy businessman. So it's like, these are the five things that are lights out sales on, uh, on, um, you know, on Kickstarter. Cthulhu is one of them. If you, you know, I mean, literally, you know, I, I, I could wipe my ass with 22 pages, uh, of, of, you know, of comic book paper, bind it together, put Cthulhu in the title and probably make like $8,000 on, uh, on Kickstarter at least. So, so it's, it, it is a good start. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's the, um, put Lovecraft in the title, Lovecraft and Cthulhu, and then you're you're at twelve grand. So there was a, um, there was a British uh, author a few years ago, twenty many years ago, who looked at the bestseller list and saw that in England the bestselling books were about World War II, golf, and cats, and he literally wrote a book of comic essays and called it "Golfing for Cats" and put a swastika on the cover. <laughs> and he was like, oh, "That's got to sell, right?" And the American version of that in the fifties was Lincoln's doctor's dog. So, you know, for, for the modern audience, do Cthulhu's cat, you know, Cthulhu's cat's TikTok. There it is. That's, you know, that's yeah. the, that's the, that's yeah. the number one seller. Yeah. And when, yeah. we, when we did, you know, our pastiche of the Ninja Turtles is with cats, uh, called the radically rearranged Ronin ragdolls. And when we started, that was a decision Kevin and I made, like a couple of weeks before we went live. Like they were lizards and he called me up and he said, I'm really not happy about them being green. Like, I think I'm, I'm asking for Nickelodeon to get mad 
and come after us if I keep them green. So what the, and we both love cats and have cats. And when, how about everybody likes cats? Let's make them cats. Yeah. And when we presented it to Kickstarter, we heard the president of Kickstarter said, oh, well, cats, this thing's going to do like a million dollars. You know, like yeah. it's got cats in it. You're fine. You know, like you're, you're guaranteed. I hope you, I hope you did a, a, a hang in there poster. <laughs> we should actually, that's a great idea. Um, that, hang in there poster. Yeah. Really somebody would have gotten that. Yeah. 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 Sure so, not too late. Yeah. No, so yeah, um, we're, still, yeah. we're still making things with cats on them, obviously. But yeah, it is. And it, you know, the thing is, though, like with anything else, you actually love these things. You, It's not a cynical like people love Wizard of Oz and people love Mad Max. So I'm just going to sit down and shit out something that, you know, yeah. you have to have an affection for those things for that. Yeah. To you have to actually be moved internally by this stuff, you know, by Calvin and Hobbes and by the yeah. idea of Calvin and Hobbes grown up. That's a profound it's, thing in its way. It's a good thing and a, and a bad thing for me that um, I I can't really write stuff that I have no interest in. I have to find something that I like about it. It's one thing for maybe like a short story that I could probably grit my teeth and, and, and push through, but um, especially for something that's like a marathon, like an actual full like uh, comic series, um, you know, for me, it's, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but I think remixing is sort of the sincerest form of fandom for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I read comics and I loved comics and then I, I became a comics reviewer. I loved comics so much. And then that wasn't doing it for me. And so like, I, you know, I shudder to think what's going to happen in 10 years, you know, if, if the edge ever comes off of creating comics, but I think, yeah, for me, the, the genesis of any series that I work on is it's something there's there's got to be something that I love enough that I would want to devote, you know, uh, uh, you know, six months of my life. Right. To putting it together. And um, and so, yeah, you know, for Spencer and Locke, it was um, old school Frank Miller. You know, he was the first creator that made me realize that real writers made these things. And for the OZ, it was kind of like being able to fuse together um fantasy and post-apocalyptic storytelling and uh, and doing a war book and doing it with these really iconic characters that um, I, I, I saw there was a lot of room for interpretation. Um, you know, even like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the game uh, Chrono Trigger. It's one of my favorite video games. And, you know, the, the archetypes that go in there reminded me a lot of The Wizard of Oz. So I was able to kind of graft one onto the other. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's both a good and a bad thing for me. You know, it's a bad thing because it means that there could be people who might be offering me work. And if I'm not into it, I, I just, I can't do it. Um, but it does mean that um, anything that I really hunker down and do, it's because I found an angle that I like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's so, really, and that's really the job is yeah. you know, of being a professional writer instead of being, you know, there's nothing wrong with only doing your own shit and doing your own creator own shit. That's, you know, yeah. we should all be so lucky that we have a lifestyle that affords us to be able to just create the things that we like. But yeah. nine times out of 10, I have not been thrilled about assignments I have gotten and I go home and think about them and I get into them and I, you know, I was not crazy about that. the idea of doing a Betty page comic. And then I watched a documentary that was all Betty page herself speaking and I went, oh, she's great. I can write her. She's fantastic. Yeah. But the wow. idea of like an open-ended series about a fetish model, I was like, mm, who cares? I don't, 
Do I care? I don't care. But engaging with who the real woman was and learning about it, oh no, actually she's awesome. And that's a great yeah. character and I would love to write that character. Yeah, you know? it's, 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 it's very much, if you can't find a good angle, because there, you're right, there are some people who would be super mercenary and they'd just be like, oh, well, like, you know, I'm gonna crap out this thing even though I have no affection for it that I have, that that, that I, and, and it shows in the work, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and sure, some of it might sell itself, but I even think that has a limited tail, yeah. you know? I mean, it, 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 it's, especially it's something serialized. I mean, I'm sure there could be somebody who, you know, might, who could do Mad Max and The Wizard of Oz as, as, as a graphic novel and, and, that said, people, you know, especially for graphic novels, they're going to flip through it. They're going to see, like, does this look interesting to me at all? Right. And if, you know, and, and it shows pretty quick if, if if nobody's putting their heart into it. If it's just another job, people see it. Well, and it's it's also responsible for a lot of that added, the attitude of, like, it's a job and it's a prestige job, so I'm going to take it even if I'm wrong for it. It results in a lot of bad work. Uh, the idea, yeah. uh, I was dating a, a, a a studio executive once and she was this is a million years ago she came home with conspiracy of dunces and she read it over the weekend i have not read it i will confess it's one of those classics i've never read and she said i hate this book and i hate the protagonist i said so you're going to turn down the project she said no soderbergh is on this this is a huge project i'm like but you it's a book whether it's good or bad doesn't matter it's a book that people love that people deeply care about. And you're going to be giving notes to Steven Soderbergh on this thing that you hate. And you clearly don't understand why people love it. That doesn't make you wrong, by the way. It may be terrible, but like, you're not the person to do this then, right? Like, if you don't get what's good about it, and you see that in a lot of films, and even in a lot of comic books, where someone takes on something like, oh, you don't, you don't understand why people love this. Yeah. So yeah. you're not giving them the part of it that they really love and care about, mm. you know? That's why I, I think I've, I've had, uh, you know, there are certain projects that I, I've found. Another way to, to approach it sometimes is, is you interrogate it, you yeah. know? Um, and so, um, for, for example, that was part of the way, the reason that we came up with the OZ was I had, you know, I, I, the Judy Garland film is like cultural osmosis for everybody. And I actually read, uh, the L. Frank Baum books in, in right. college. Um, but I was thinking, you know, it's like what's portrayed as a happy ending in the Judy Garland film, like would never be a happy ending in the real world. You know, right. I mean, it's like all the power structures of Oz are gone. Right. And, um, and, and so the, the way that I kind of threaded the needle a bit is um, there's, there's ways to say, okay, the angles that have been, have been taken previously, is there a different angle that can be taken? But then you think like, like you were saying, what are the things that people loved about the original? You know, and, and usually for me, it's thinking about what's the iconography here? You know, right. just the, the, the recognition um, for my book, Scouts Honor. You know, I did a lot of research on the Boy Scouts of America. Um, you know, I looked at every single merit badge that they had. Um, I read a, a scout manual. I read up in the history of Robert Baden Powell, um, uh, you know, and and, uh, and how the, the Boy Scouts were originally an English institution that were brought to the US. And uh, the thing that always kills me is I, I wanted to fit it in there and I couldn't. Um, you know, the, the mythology of the unknown scout um, and, 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 and how uh, just somebody doing a random, a kid doing their good uh, turn for the day sort of built a whole ethos. Um, you know, those are sorts of things that like, 
that becomes the landmarks, you know, when you're doing something like this is, is you're like, okay, the Wizard of Oz, people are going to be expecting winged monkeys. So, you know, these, they're going to now be sort of almost the equivalent of World War II pilots where they're right. like just dropping bombs on people. You're going to be expecting, you know, what happened to the Tin Man? Well, if he's, you know, if he's been destroyed and rebuilt with whatever scraps around him, what does he look like now as a wounded warrior? Um, you know, and, and, uh, and so you're able to sort of re review something that you've already seen, but through a brand new lens. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a way that sort of gives the story a sense of recognizability, uh, yeah. which I think is, is good. It's a, it's a comforting presence for people trying something that's still new to them, but then it gives it a totally different angle and narrative propulsion yeah. uh, because this is very unlike tonally the, uh, the Judy Garland film, um, but it still pays homage to what came before. And so, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think respecting the source material yeah. and respecting not just the source material, but the component parts of what make it that. Right. Cause I think, well, I think you can, you can still build an engine in, in this case, you, you can build an engine in different ways uh, using the same component parts. And if you, as long as you stay true to those component parts, mm -hmm. people, I think uh, they really respect that you've done the research and that they right. respect that, um, that you're not just saying, well, I know better than the source material. Right. Well, see the 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 word, the phrase that gets overused the most by me when I'm doing a promotional tour is the word love letter. Yeah. Um, but 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 you know, my comic books are very much you know love letters, tributes to yeah. you know the, the things I've fallen in love with. You know, uh, uh, you know, over the course of my career. I mean, the reason I, <clears throat> you know. The uh, growing up, the TV raised me. You know, the adults around me were not teaching me anything that was worth learning, <laughs> and so I learned right and wrong from Captain Picard. You know, uh, uh, I fell in love with these people who were on the screen, and I fell in love with the screen in general, right? And 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 that was how and why I became a writer, and now I'm creating this stuff for other people to consume, and that's a, like a tremendous responsibility uh, uh, for me. But a lot of just kind of filtering these things that, you know, I fell in love with as a kid. And so I am writing love letters to those things. Um, I sometimes think that, you know, uh, your approach, David, uh, I, I, either of the Davids, I guess, but, you know, <laughs> you take these, okay, Kelvin and Hobbes is this, you know, this huge deal. Frank Miller is this huge deal, right? Let's, let's mash them up. When, when I'm at a convention and I'm staring at some like, 40 year old guy who loves football. And I'm like, it's a love letter to uh, 70s paranoid spy thrillers, you know, um, uh, Three Days of the Condor or Marathon Man. And he's like, huh? you know, <laughs> um, maybe you guys are a little bit better at it than I am. Uh, uh, um, You're more cultured. You know, yeah, well, but, but um, no, and, and you know, whatever. I mean, I, you know, now I have suicide jockeys, which really is a love letter to fucking, you know, Con Air and, and Face Off and Armageddon. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so, so I'm not, I, I'm not claiming uh, uh, culture or, or, or anything. It's just, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I've, I've done it a little more broadly than possible uh, 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 than others. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you are in love with something, uh, and if you can put that down on a page, and I think if we have anything as as creators, I mean, this thing we've been blessed with that a lot of other people don't have is is we can show people why we love something. This love that we have inside, they have the same love when they're reading Frank Miller or, or, or when they're reading Calvin and Hobbes or when they're reading now Spencer and Locke. Um, but they have other gifts, right? Maybe they're the fucking greatest golfer in the world or something like that, but they do not have the gift to to 
take that love and put it down on a page for someone else to consume. That, 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 that you know, that's what we've been blessed with. And so, so I think that this is the exercise, right? Yeah. This is what we're doing. And then, you know, I think um, I see this in Avaloni's work a lot where it's, um, and, and, and it's kind of what you were just talking about, Pepos, where it's like, um, uh, you know, it, I mean, you have to get to know these worlds backwards and forwards, and it's the history of the world, the texture of the world, the whole yeah. nine yards. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm writing uh, something now for, for Immortal Studios. You and I were at an Immortal event yesterday, and so this is fresh in my mind, but I'm writing something that takes place during the Boxer Rebellion. So in China, around 1900, I wasn't there. I'm not Chinese. Uh, there is this rich cultural element, <clears throat> this rich historical element. There, the, the, All of these politics... Um, and so, you know, and, and, and so you got to wonder, it's like, okay, well, well, Ryland's not an expert on any of these things. So maybe he's not the one to write it. However, like, like what I have done is I have, I have done the deepest dive imaginable in all of this stuff. And I'm sorting through it. And I'm reading this book and I'm reading this text and I'm checking this thing and I'm talking to this person and, and, and I am falling in love with this world as I'm, as I'm sorting through it. And, and the beauty of that is that, you know, when you're doing your research, like you're culling through things and the things that you find shiny and fascinating, those are the things you need to grab onto. You, mm -hmm. you put them in the book and if you do it the right way, then the reader falls in love with that stuff too. You know, um, um, uh, they are, you are giving them a tour. You are, you, you know, again, there are a million things in my fucking house, but, but if anybody could walk through and highlight, it's like, you know, oh, what, you know, this is really cool because of this, because of this, this, and this, and there's a history behind this. And I got this in fucking Bangkok on a weird thing. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like you were doing, you, you were taking them on a tour through this world and you were showing them why you loved it. And then, you know, and then they love it for the same reasons. And, and, you know, that's amazing. That's interesting. You know, again, like uh, you can see it in Scout's Honor where it's like, um, yeah, I mean, you built out this, you know, you built up this really interesting, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic world and there's great character stuff in that. But it's also there's also this really interesting kind of treatise on scouting and on yeah. and, and on the principles of scouting, and uh, and and about taking that into the world. And in your case, it's a very twisted, you know, messed up version of the world at that point, right? But 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 I think that shows through, and that's interesting. The highest the highest compliment I got for Scouts Honor um, <laughs> is I actually got um, an email from the Boy Scouts of America asking if I wanted to do an interview for their magazine. Oh wow! Uh, asking you about it? my time That's as a great. Boy Scout, but here's here's the problem: I was not actually a Boy Scout. Um, uh, my 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 uh, my younger brothers were, and so yeah. I, I had to let that interview go um, because that would have been a really awkward, uncomfortable phone call. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that's a high compliment when people see that you've done enough of the research that they just <clears> assume. You know that like, yeah. oh, you know, why would anybody know so much about the Boy Scouts if they weren't a Boy Scout? And I think you know it's there's that's where the research comes in and and, and yeah. finding that personal connection. And for me, um, Scouts Honor was uh, you know it was uh, ultimately it was it was a conversation about politics and religion. Uh, you know, it's a, the, it's the story of about a, a, a after a nuclear apocalypse, a cult has risen from the ashes, and their Bible's an old uh, Ranger Scout manual. And it, it, and and sort of interrogating, well, a, literally a group called the Boy Scouts, you know, that becomes, uh, you know, that becomes inherently sexist, you know, and what happens to somebody who's trying to navigate that and sort of already just kind of the old parochial ties between the Boy Scouts and, and religion mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, anything that you can be a fan of, anything that becomes part of your identity, you can take it so far that it becomes 
quasi-religious, that it becomes quasi-cult-like. And, um, and, you know, that's the thing with a lot of organized religions. Uh, you know, I, I was raised Jewish I'm, and I still consider my, you know, I, I, I'm still a practicing Jew. Um, but most organized religions have some stuff, some skeletons in the closet. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very disorienting and very disillusioning when those come to light. And they, it always does. Um, and, and so um, that was sort of my in. You know, yeah. it was just, you know, what was it like growing up in a conservative, uh, both politically and religiously, Jewish household in the Midwest? And what mm-hmm. was it like when I left and had to recalibrate everything when I realized all these things I had been taught were gospel were not as bedrock as I had believed? Right. Um, the world's and, not black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and that's the, the job is synthesizing all of that and putting it in the art. That's yeah. the, that is the gig. And when, and we're all influenced by things, we all pick from the things. And it's the question is, how successfully do you turn it into a new third thing? Yeah. Someone could read the, uh, the OZ, I think, having zero knowledge of L. Frank Baum or Judy Garland and enjoy the hell out of it. It's just, yeah. it's, it's just a vivid world and it doesn't, you know, going back to, not to not to talk too much about my buddy, but you know, when I read the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was in college, and I wrote it off as a very entertaining, beautifully done mashup pastiche of Frank Miller and Chris Claremont. Yeah, and I discovered years later it's a their collaboration is comically nail on the head with that, where literally Kevin draws the turtle and writes you know, Ninja Turtle, Frank Miller, and Gary, and, and Laird writes Teenage Mutant on top of the logo. And it's like, oh, it's literally, here's your Chris Claremont, here's your Frank Miller. Teenage yeah. Mutant, Ninja Turtle. And it's, yeah. you know, Daredevil and Ronin very strongly. Uh, it's, Dark Knight is being done at the time, you know. Yeah. But it's like, I wrongly judged that people wouldn't <laughs> that people wouldn't be into an a, even a brilliantly done pastiche mm-hmm. of two different flavors of Marvel comics at the time. I was like, yeah, how long can you play this joke out for? Completely missing that a generation would go, Turtles doing martial arts, that's the most awesome. Like, I, ha- I was looking at the forest. Yeah, I was looking at the trees, and there's yeah. a whole forest that is easily accessible to all ages. Yep. And, you know, and they're green. So it's even like all races, all anyone yeah. can identify with a Ninja Turtle. Uh, yeah. And now they've got a, a female Ninja Turtle, Jenica. So they've expanded even that. Uh, yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's very possible that you could take the same ingredients and make yeah. something no one would give a shit about. Well, well, yeah. well, well, well here's the thing is, let, let me just sit it right on the head because we're, what we're talking about is like, what do you have to say? You know, right. I mean, if, if you're, if you're going to spend all this time making something and, and expect people to read it, like it might as well be about something. Right. And 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 you can make I mean, you can make entertaining stuff about nothing. I mean, I was just talking about, um, you know, I mean, I was just talking about suicide jockeys. And, you know, I mean, if, if, you, if you go to Con Air and you go to, um, uh, uh, you know, um, The Rock, like, you know, they're. They're not like they're not making earth changing, I, I, you know, world changing, like earth shattering, like uh, 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 commentary on like on, 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 you know, 
the depravity is a man or anything like that. I mean, this is not, um, those are just entertaining rides. You know, it's like, it is like putting an ACDC song on or something like that. Um, uh, I, I already find myself in promoting this, having to kind of like adjust and apologize because this is a book that is actually about something, you know, uh, in a way that I feel like a lot of those films aren't, you know what I'm saying? This is, um, uh, this was, it was co-conceived by two Zen monks at a, uh, you know, at, at a mountain retreat, you know, um, and the big hairy existential questions that we are, uh, you know, that we're asking, uh, um, while we are, you know, at the Mount Baldy Zen Center staring at a wall for five days on end, we're asking those same questions here. We're wrestling with that same stuff. And so, you know, they're, uh, you know, about the fabric of time and space and existence. What are we? Who are we? What is time? All of these things. And so we get into that exploration in here, um, uh, you know, and so that was this, this, you know, this, this kind of, you know, big, uh, um, that's something I'm wrestling against, but, but, but yeah, it's like, it, 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 you know, what is it, uh, you know, what is your story about? What do you have to say? Um, uh, and I think that, you know, if you can figure that out, I mean, if, if, if you can infuse that from moment one, um, then that's when you're kind of doing something special, something interesting, something challenging, right? Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you hit the, the nail right on the head with that. No, and something, it is an interesting thing. I don't know how, you, if, if this is how it works for you guys, sometimes plot, what I'll call plot comes first. And sometimes story comes first. More often than not, as I think about plot, what happens, I stumble upon story, why I care and what it's actually about. It's not like I wake up and say, I am interested in addressing the theme of X, Y, or Z. It's more like I go, what am I doing with Elvira and Vincent Price? And what, where's the, what's the thing about that? What am I, what are they, what do those two people have to teach each other? What is there to be learned by that? I think in one of the most challenging ones, I did a, a mashup, you know, paid for by the licensors of Twilight Zone and The Shadow. And it made me like deconstruct what is the Twilight Zone and what is the Shadow. And the challenge I came up with is they're both kind of the same. The Shadow is the Twilight Zone walking around as a human man or a sort of human man. Because what happens? You encounter the Twilight Zone. Whatever there is about you as a human being comes to the fore, what your weaknesses are, and you are judged. You are you die, or you are punished, or you reform, or you learn the lesson. And that's exactly what the shadow does to people. Reform or die. You know, become a different person, become a better person, and in some cases, and work for me. Or here's two Colt 45s that are going to put about 12 holes in you in the next couple of seconds. So I started working on it, having no idea what it, and, and I said, okay, so the, the shadow is sort of an instrument of the twilight zone and CBS came back with, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. The shadow falls into the twilight zone. And I was like, so something has to, what lesson do you teach the man who knows everything and can see in everybody's soul? The obvious joke is, can he see in his own soul? You know, he knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Does he know what evil lurks in his own heart? And even as a huge fan of the shadow, I decided that the arc for the four issues would be, what does the shadow not know? Mercy. So the theme of the four issues is there is actually no justice without mercy. This guy thinks he's dispensing justice, going around perforating people with handguns. 
But that is not actually how justice is accomplished in this world by shooting everybody that's a problem. Well, I mean, this is, yeah, this is an interesting look at process because I think that, you know, sometimes you're, you know, I mean, in a case like you're talking about, you are forced to, to, you know, sort of find you like gun to your head. You need to find out what this thing is about. You have, you have been, you've been given this gift. Like we want you to write the shadow and you love the shadow. So of course you want to write the shadow, but now, now what is this about? Right? Like that, like that, that is the thing you owe a script uh, at a certain time. And, and no matter what, you're going to turn something in and it'll either be about something and probably be a successful uh, uh, swing at this thing, or it won't be about anything and it'll probably be shit. And, 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 you know, that becomes a thing. I mean, um, with creator owned projects, I mean, like, like any of you guys and like most of the people listening, I mean, I have a list a mile long of, of story ideas, you know, of, of stuff I might want to do of little, like, and it's like, you're talking about sometimes it's just like, I mean, with, with suicide jockeys, it was like Brad and I were big Tokusatsu fans, Brad, Brad bigger than, than I was because, uh, you know, when, when we were, when we were coming up, when we're young kids and, uh, the, the, you know, we all had like two UHF stations, right? For me, it was WKBD TV 50, um, Saturdays at noon, they played crazy Japanese tokusatsu shit. And I had no, idea, you know, I'm eight years old. I have no idea what I'm looking at, but I know it's bonkers. I, I, I know I love it. I know it's interesting. I know it's twisted. And I fell in love with it then. Brad had the same experience, but Brad loved that so much that he doubled down, tripled down on it. He eventually moves to Japan and he goes to work for this company called Zubaraya Productions, which, um, was founded by the, the creator of Godzilla. Um, they have done great tokusatsu work for decades, um, and they are best known for doing all of the Ultraman shows. Um, and so for, for, you know, for a decade, a decade for 12 years, Brad worked as an exec, a, a producer on, on Ultraman and all, on all these other shows. Um, and so we were fans of this stuff. We're sitting around, you know, two times a year, we go up to these mountain retreats. We're sitting around for, for days on end. Um, we're not usually allowed to talk, but when we're, when we're allowed to talk, we're talking about the stuff that we, that we love, right? Like, you know, Oh, what did you watch growing up? It kept, we kept coming back to tokusatsu. And so it's like, well, why isn't, um, why, why doesn't tokusatsu get to do in the States? It has this niche audience, but, but why isn't it the biggest, why isn't it as big as fast and furious? Right. Um, uh, and there are any number of reasons for that, right. It's hokey. It's weird. It's blah, 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 blah. So it's like, so then the conversation becomes, well, well, what would you have to do to change that? How could you package tokusatsu for the, the modern, you know, American tokusatsu audience. And, um, and, uh, you know, we were kind of the perfect pair to do that. One of my claims to fame in the film business is I have, uh, you know, if you want to talk about, um, you want to talk about uh, uh, Fast and the Furious meets Voltron. Well, like Brad spent, you know, like 12 years basically working on Voltron. And one of my claims to fame in the film business is I've written for six of the directors of six of the nine Fast and the Furious movies. So we were the guys to figure it out. Right. But so you write that down. Like we want to do a tokusatsu joint and that happened years ago. Right. But then it becomes, okay, what is it about? And this was this this was this thing that was marked on a list for a couple of years until together we figured, oh, it's about this. We need to write a story about this. It is about this character. It's about loss. It's about PTSD. It's about a, a it's a Boogie Nights uh, uh, um, uh, style um, examination of a non-traditional family. It's these things. It's um, 
you know, and so that's how it comes together. And once you have that, then this thing that was just like just a, a, a random mark on this list gets bumped up to the top. Then you start to see it. It starts to have texture and life. And then you're like, you know, it, it's a squeaky wheel thing. It's like, okay, it's time to give this the grease, right? And that's what happens. And then, I mean, the other part of this is that, you know, most of my job in Hollywood is pitching on open <laughs> writing assignments, right? And so, and so it is about this, you know, like a, a, a Hollywood studio says, okay, we are doing a film, you know, we're doing a film based on this book, right? And however many it is, three, four, five, 12, 20 sometimes writers, they come in, they all read the same book. Um, and then an exec sits in his or her office with their arms folded and it's like, wow me. And three, four, five, 12, 20 writers come in and they all tell her that exec what it's about, right? And the person that nails that best um, uh, gets the job and then gets to go write that movie. And, that, and it, it'll change over time, of course, like that. But a project doesn't go until you know what it's about. That is the thing. That's what gets you hired in Hollywood. That's what um, that's what gets you hired in the comic book business. Or sometimes it's just what it's just the difference between sinking and swimming on the shadow, right? Um, uh, as a as I often get the question from you know uh, from young creators or whatever, like what should I be writing? I have all these ideas. What should I be writing? And this is the key to that. You know, it's 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 about what idea is screaming the loudest, right? But it's about the one that you've figured out. There is, you know, it, it's like you're, you're, you, you have all these ideas and you're moving through them and they're Rubik's cubes and you, you work on this one for a while, it's not coming together. You pick this one up, you work on this one for a while, it's not coming together. And then after a while, this is kind of a good, I'm, I'm sorry that the people uh, listening can't see this, um, my, my Rubik's cubing with my hands, but eventually you look down and you're like, holy shit, the colors are matching up, right? Yeah, and that's that's the one to go at. You figured it out. You figured out the fucking formula. You figured out what it's about, and that's the idea to work on. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing with the Twilight Zone, the Shadow, and this—it's funny that of all characters, the Shadow. There's that kind of creaky, awful writer cr cliche of like the characters tell you the story, and it's a really pretentious, awful things that writers say that happens to be also true, and. Uh, in the first issue of that, I had still not quite nailed where I was going with it. And the very first scene is the shadow, pretty much unprovoked, breaking up a Nazi rally in Staten Island in 1939. We're not at war with Nazi Germany. It's a group of American citizens having a political meeting and he blows up their radio truck. And when they object to this by shooting at him, he kills a bunch of them that are armed. Good. And Margo's kind of like, yeah, but by the time I got to the fourth issue, I was kind of like, <coughs> that's actually not good. They're not like, they may be the worst people in the world, but a group of them that's not actually killing anyone, like provoking them into a gunfight because it gives you an excuse to mow down 20 of them in, a, in an auditorium is not really... You know, and basically uh, the Rod Serling of it all is I, I introduced a character of, an, you know, 17-year-old American Nazi who's like, you killed a bunch of my friends yesterday. And he's like, yeah, I was kind of after he says after Poland, the sight of the swastika in my beloved New York was too much for me. But he's like, but yeah, you're right. I don't actually have the right to go around shooting whoever the hell I want just because I 
just because I know they're bad. That's not right. really that's not really the American way. Is no trial, no judge, no jury. Just oh, you're wearing a swastika. Bang, 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 bang. Right. Um, you know, and but what fascinated me about that, the reason I bring it up again, is in issue one, it had not occurred to me that what the shadow was doing was unjust. By the time I went on a four issue journey with him through the Twilight Zone, I was like, that's actually kind of a horrible, bullshit, vigilante, psychopath thing that he did. And Margot Lane in the first issue even says to him, there were like children and babies and old men in that crowd and a lot of unarmed people and you were firing into it. He's like, I only hit the people with gun with guns because I'm the shadow and I don't like she actually says, yeah. What if you had missed and hit one of the wrong people? And he just kind of smiles at her like I, I don't miss. You know who you're talking <laughs> to? Like I I yeah. hit who I shoot at. That's who but, I am. Yeah. No, the, the the shadow, well known for his sense of normalcy and uh right. but that but I thought, okay, that's that's and look, you know, it's the there's a subtle difference between knowing what the flaws on are, are in a thing and still loving it and still satisfying that and also looking at it with modern eyes and saying, here's the crazy part about this character. You know, I also did Doc Savage set in 38 or 39 and it was, uh, it was a sim. That character had recently been deconstructed a lot and the comics weren't bad, but they were trying really, they were struggling to get him into the present day. And I was like, when they said do a Doc Savage, I was like, can I just do a standard, basic 1930s Doc Savage story? And I will find. And what I tried to do was I updated nothing about the format. I just made the psychology of the characters a little more human and realistic. Yeah. And that was enough to, to me, the update was let's pe treat people in the 1930s like they were human beings, just like in any other time. And the most... It's a, as an aside, the most curious thing to me about that is it's centered around literally the the catalyst of the story was a lesbian relationship. And I feel like the the audience over a certain age, it went right over their head that it was a lesbian. Oh, they're such good pals, Amelia Earhart and Pat Savage. Whereas comic reviewers under 30 were all like, so I guess Pat Savage is in love with this aviator named Amelia Earhart who's gone missing. Like they got it immediately. Yeah. And and the people over a certain age, when Doc Savage says, I know you loved her, go like, oh yeah, they were the closest of buddies. It's like, <laughs> not what I mean. But yeah. to me, it's like, yeah. yeah, that the modernization was there were gay people in the 1930s. Yeah. You know, one of them might've been Doc Savage's cousin. Um, you know, and that was enough of a way to like, that was enough of a modernization for me to go like, I'm going to do this very boilerplate Raiders of the Lost Ark 1930s adventure story. It's going to be based around an LGBTQ plus relationship. And it's not, that's not, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to publicize that. We're just going to do it and see if anybody cares or notices. I expected the rights holders to reject it and I think it either flew over their heads or they went, yeah, sure. Pat Savage is bisexual. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, uh, but yeah, it is about having respect for the thing enough. And you see versions of it. And some of those versions are incredibly popular where you would say, you know what? I fundamentally disagree with your perspective 
on the character and what you think this character means. And, you know, James Bond has never met a supervillain quite as deadly as Sam Mendes. Um, so, you know, but the thing, but again, I'm also not one of those fans. I'm like, eventually someone else will make a Bond movie and I will be excited to see it again. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. honestly, that's part of the reason why I got my start in the business is, um, you know, it, it comes down to eventually, you know, you can either bitch about it, uh, uh, you know, that you don't like what somebody else is doing, or you can put your money where your mouth is and, and make your own. And um, I, I uh, you know, my, my job as a reviewer sort of, there was statistically a certain amount of bitching required. And, you know, after a while, you're just like, okay, like, well, how can I shake this up? Yep. And, um, and yeah, you know, my, my thinking is, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't like my take on the Wizard of Oz, uh, have at it, write your own take on Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know, I can't stop you. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the teams that I'm working with, especially on the OZ, you know, Ruben Rojas, Whitney Kogar, DC Hopkins. And um, I think seeing their work, uh, you know, uh, seeing them sort of realizing the script and putting their own stamp on it, um, that's the thing that gets me out of bed, you know, in, in the morning. Um, that's the reason why I've pitched that, that series so hard. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's really the strength of my, my collaborators that has sort of gotten me as far as I've gotten in, in, in the industry. Uh, you know, I, I think every book is a calling card, um, especially when you're starting out, um, especially when you're earlier in your, your career like mine. And um, having good collaborators, ones that, you know, are just as hungry and talented uh, as, as, as you can hope for, um, that's when you can sort of work your way up the ladder. And I know that's something that Ryland had brought up at the beginning of the podcast was how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And I think the, the first thing is um, you get collaborators that you trust and you get people yeah. who are also on the, on, on the come up. I mean, I know there is a, a case to be made of, oh, well, you know, if you had the money, you know, would you shell out for like a Greg Capullo or something, you know, I mean, just throwing out a name. But I think that that will sell a book, but that won't sell your career. Right. You know, mm -hmm. you need to be thinking about this in terms of your reputation from book to book to book, showing that you're growing as a creator and showing that you're doing it on your own merits and on your own steam. I mean, I think I think it, it'd be very easy for, you know, somebody to, to, to come out of nowhere and say, hey, I'm going to hire, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to hire uh, Raphael Albuquerque or something, you know. Um, somebody who's like a well-known name, but any editor worth their salt is going to be like, well, that guy must have like clearly backed up the money truck. You know, usually your, 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 your skill is not there to justify having an artist that big. Right. Mm -hmm. You really, it's, it's about putting in the time and really honing the craft um, and having collaborators that are sort of at your level and then showing that, Hey, like nobody knew who George Santiago Jr. was when Spencer and Locke came out. But, you know, this was our first books together. And I think right. we really inspired each other to bring the best out of each other's work. And um, and as a result, I think it's gotten both of us work, yep. you know, and, and same thing with the OZ, you know, um, and, and Scout's Honor um, with Luca Casalinguida. Um, you know, it's sort of you, you, you keep moving up the ladder with each new book in terms of the collaborators you can bring in. And then, you know, you can start showing those off to different editors and different publishers um and sort of that's where the snowball starts you know yeah. then it becomes sort of success begetting success yeah 
Well, I, th I think I think you're being a little too modest about your success only coming from your collaborators. Uh, something has to inspire them to draw what it is that they're drawing. But I also, I, I always say like the greatest thing in the world is getting a job, tying it for first place or maybe edging it out is giving someone else a good job. And yeah. the greatest thing <clears throat> in the world is when that works out. And as much as I'd love to work with any number of legendary people in the business, the greatest thing is finding some artist that's not as well known as you think they should be. Yeah. And giving them something to draw that's going to make them look fucking great. And then watching, you know, like I feel so, I am continually amazed that Dave Acosta has not been hired out from under me. <laughs> not under me, but beside me, I'll say. Yeah, because uh, he's an amazing comic book artist, and he's done you know hundreds of great pages for me, with me, and I'm like, someone should put this guy in a superhero book and you know make a truckload of money. Um, yeah. you know, and Salon Salon and Ahmed is doing Dragon with him, did the Kickstarter, which did very well, because he's a Marvel guy with a Marvel name, and that attracted a ton of eyes to it, and that's great. Uh, and I hope that, you know, that too boosts Dave, uh, Dave Acosta's uh, profile. But yeah, anything that can, you know, yes, it's great when someone puts down the ladder for you to climb up. But obviously it is then behoove you to, you know, send it on its way to, the, to anyone else to, to help them climb up. And it's just, a, it's a thousand times yeah, you're satisfying. You ultimately, know. you know, George, George Lucas learned his lesson. The the DP on Star Wars, Gil Taylor, an old British professional who didn't treat him well, didn't treat him with respect. They still managed to make a great movie together, but the second movie, Empire Strikes Back, is shot by David Cronenberg's DP from Canada, Peter Sushitsky, who was not a big deal, who was not a, but Lucas went. Here's a guy who could benefit from shooting the Empire Strikes Back, yeah. you know, and who is who I'm doing him a Gil Taylor thought he was doing me a huge favor. Yeah. You know, while I was putting him on the biggest movie he will ever shoot, he thought I was an idiot and he had to like treat me like a baby. I'll pick a great guy in the farm leagues and put him, you know, I'll put him in the starting lineup at the Yankees and see how he does. And he, you know, he hit. A home run and has had an amazing career ever since but yeah. it's always more gratifying to be doing someone a favor than to have someone doing you a favor yeah always um we should wrap up i gotta yes. i gotta take over sure. for the four-year-old so yeah indeed we should but uh yeah. we always do end with where can we find you and where I, you've got the oz 2 going on right now yeah so you can follow me on twitter and instagram at pepos d it's my last name first initial or uh david pepos comics on facebook you can subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks, at bit.ly slash pepnews. Um, or you can visit my website at davidpepos.com. And yeah, back the OZ on Kickstarter. It's at bit.ly slash the OZ comic or the OZ comic 2. Both will take you to the same place. And uh, yeah, we've like I said before, we've got tiers for any level of budget, any level of involvement you want to be at. If you missed the first one, we've got print and digital catch-up tiers. So, uh, yeah, we, we would love to have you as a, a yellow brick road warrior. So uh, join us in the trenches of the OZ. Thank you. And Rylan, where can the kids find you? 
I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T for those listening. Um, I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, and so now I have to spell it for you. Um, uh, my books, uh, Aberrants, and uh, I'm shuffling through things. Banjacks are available in fine comic shops everywhere, um, and via Comixology for, I don't know, we still have a couple more weeks at Comixology, or is it already gone? In <laughs> uh, on, on Amazon uh, uh, for download, um, you can get my uh, my Kickstarter books: uh, the Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and the Fargo S Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers, uh, via my backer kit site. That is uh, the Jump Two dot com. The Jump One Word and the Number Two dot com. Uh, that's also a good uh, one-stop Rylan Grant shop to get uh, autographed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and all sorts of uh, rare con variants and all that stuff. Um, but my latest and greatest uh, Suicide Jockeys is available at fine comic shops everywhere right here. And now issue one uh, is on the uh, the racks as we speak. And issue two is coming in the next, uh, I don't know, two weeks. So go out and get it. Great. Great. It. And uh, I'm uh, davidavalonefreelance.com branches off to all of the things. So you don't have to don't have to write anything down now. Just davidavalonefreelance.com and Twitter, the, the Instagram, all of it. And uh, in shops today is Elvira meets Vincent Price issue two. Uh, there will be more coming of that in the uh, as the year goes along. And uh, I do another podcast called Pulp Today which you should seek out. It's mostly me reading from classic fiction, sometimes with guest stars. And boy, I had something else I really wanted to talk about. Now I can't remember. <laughs> Vote no on the California recall. That's it. That's all I've got. Thanks for joining us today, kids. And we'll see you on the next exciting episode. Thanks for Probably with David Pepos. Of course. Thanks, you guys, for having me. <laughs> Take care. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.